Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Hey, I'm Wes Moore. Welcome to Future City. On this show, we discuss the future of our city, Baltimore. What are the emerging trends? What's working and what isn't? And we change the conversation from what's wrong with Baltimore to what's next for Baltimore. On Future City, we've covered the Makers Movement, the Confederate Monument controversy, the future of the arts, women's financial equity, and much more. You can tune into those episodes online at wypr.org slash podcast central. But on today's show, we're looking at the future of retail. It's the holidays, and maybe you still have some last-minute shopping to do. But how are you doing that shopping? Is it the same way you were doing your holiday shopping five years ago, 15 years ago? Are you driving to the mall? Are you hitting up your local shops? Or are you ordering your packages on Amazon? These days, we tend to assume that online commerce is the future, and maybe it is. But according to Business Insider, U.S. retail is growing $200 billion year over year, and in-store retail is still dwarfing e-commerce. But if we're looking at the trends, we also can't ignore that e-commerce is growing almost four times faster than in-store commerce. Today, we'll be taking a wide lens on retail and the future of commerce here in the United States, especially considering the seemingly limitless growth of online commerce-based businesses like Amazon. We'll then take a look at Baltimore and how our retail industry is changing and growing, what's working and what isn't. All that coming up in the next hour. To get things going, I'd like to introduce our first guest, Michael Corkery. He's a reporter at the New York Times, writing about finance and its impact on consumers, businesses, and the environment. Michael, thank you so much, and welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, Michael, first, I'd like for you to give us an overview of retail in America today. You know, what's changed? And obviously, the biggest shift has been from brick and mortar to online. But can you help illustrate what that means for our larger economy? Sure. I mean, there's been a seismic shift uh, in the retail industry um, that, you know, over the past three years, really kind of hitting a peak um, in the past 18 months to a year. Um, and you mentioned Amazon um, and its growth, um, you know, being the biggest um, influencer of those changes. And it's not only changed in the sort of popularity and growth of Amazon, it's not only changed, you know, where we shop, it's, it's changed how we shop and our expectations for when we shop. And that is we want uh, what we buy to be as easy as possible, to be as convenient, and to be as fast as possible. And that's what Amazon has delivered on, uh, and that's what other retailers are trying to copy. So um, Amazon has, has hit an incredibly high bar for the rest of the industry to follow. It's essentially reshaped our expectations as consumers of what we want from retail. Um, and it's, it's created an, an entirely new shopping landscape. So yes, well, still the bulk of shopping goes on in brick and mortar stores. Um, the, 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 the stores that are being the most successful 
uh, Targets, the Walmarts, um, they are taking lessons from what Amazon has taught them and tried to duplicate that in their stores and in their online um, businesses. So Amazon is the driver. They are the story of retail. And there is no end in sight um, for them being sort of um, the big innovator in this space. So what's really interesting is you talk about Walmart and, you know, how they're uh, taking a look at what Amazon did. You know, you could also look at the fact that Walmart also took a look at something uh, like Sears and what Sears did not do. You know, the fact that you have Sears used to be this, this, you know, this everything store and now has just filed for bankruptcy. Um, what are these big box, huge everything stores out there? Uh, you know, how are they thinking about the future, and and how are they thinking differently uh, when it comes to looking at the fate of one of their one of their you know distinct competitors before a place like Sears? Yeah, it's good that you bring up Sears. I mean, Sears was the Amazon of today. Um, Sears before you know, long before it declared bankruptcy um, in October. Um, and, you know, it's been on sort of decline for many years as a retailer. I mean, it was a great innovator. There was the Sears catalog. There was Sears Automotive. There was a Sears in almost every community. It touched American life in so many different ways. Um, it just did it in a, in a brick-and-mortar and mail-order way that Amazon now does in a digital way. Um, but, yes, you're absolutely right. The Walmarts of the world, the Targets of the world, look at what happened to Sears. They look at how they how Sears, despite its great success, stopped innovating, stopped experimenting, stopped pushing their business model forward, and it failed miserably and collapsed. And I think that the the specter of that sort of failure um, is a real driver for some of these incumbents, um, uh, like the Walmarts of the world to try to innovate, to try to catch up with Amazon, even if their business is pretty sound right now. I mean, you know, still, where, where Walmart is strong in parts of the country, rural America, um, you know, different, different communities where Amazon, frankly, isn't as strong, they still, they still need and have figured out that they need, they need to change. And they've started to do that in many ways, um, not just improving their website, not just improving their mobile offerings, not just you know providing two-day shipping, the same as Amazon, but they've tried to the Walmart has has and Target and others tried to make their their stores more appealing. They've tried to to take the same things, the same experience that people experience online, and bring it into their stores. And by that, it's you know faster checkout. It's you can order online. You can go to the store. Someone will bring your order of groceries to your car, like a drive-through, you know, McDonald's, uh, McDonald's window, and you can and you can drive off with your with your stuff without ever having to leave your car. I mean, again, the convenience that Amazon has sort of conditioned us to. These other retailers are starting to offer it themselves. And that's when you think about even the history of Amazon, right? I mean, Amazon didn't start with a business model of being the everything. Amazon started very, uh, you know, very, very, very small and specific and distinct and then kind of evolved from there. But it's but if you talk to, you know, many, many listeners, uh, they'll feel like Amazon has always been around. Uh, how did Amazon start out and, and what was the evolution of its business model that led to this, uh, you know, this now the most valuable company in the world? Well, you're right. Amazon started out. It's hard to remember. I mean, they started out as a bookseller, yeah. and you know, the Jeff Bezos and his friends and his wife were selling books out of their basement. 
um, and uh, basically kind of a you know early early internet mail order business and um, you know it was like finding rare books finding used books whatever whatever it was you could order on their website and they would find it for you and over time they started adding to that um, more and more products and the marketplace grew and then the logistics um, infrastructure grew to start serving all of this and Amazon has always had, at least since it became a public company in the late 90s, has had an advantage that other retailers and most frankly public, publicly traded companies do not have, which is its shareholders want the company to grow. They are buying Amazon stock hmm. because they want this company to just keep growing and growing and growing. So they have been very forgiving for many years when Amazon was losing money. It couldn't make money. It was extremely expensive to be saying if somebody ordered you know one toothbrush yes we will get that toothbrush there to you in two days no problem we guaranteed you lose money on that toothbrush amazon loses money sending that toothbrush to you in two days but the shareholders of the company said that's fine just keep growing just keep dominating the retail online retail market and one day we know that amazon will start making profits which it now is and like you said it's the most valuable company in the world. Now, that kind of the way the investors treated the company had a, had a lot to do with its success in going from a guy's basement as a bookseller to this behemoth online retailer. There are some people who are saying that a backlash towards Amazon is coming. What, what, do, you, what do you say to that? I think they're right. I think um, this has been a, a very unusual and a very interesting year for Amazon. Um, and uh, some would say it's, it kind of started uh, actually last year when Amazon bought Whole Foods Market, um, the high-end grocery store, um, and it, it, the discussion started to turn from, wow, look, this incredible company. It does so many amazing things. It's an amazing part of people's lives. It makes it so easy to, wait, wow, is this company like taking over our lives? It's Look at all the things it sells, and now it's taking over grocery stores. I think it, the perception, the public's perception started to switch about whether Amazon's growth had become sort of dangerous um, in a way that, you know, we as a society and as, as uh, you know, as government, um, uh, you know, appreciates successful businesses, but we don't want them to grow too big and become monopolies. And I think that 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 conversation started to switch. And I think even more recently, the backlash has intensified. There's more scrutiny from the likes of Bernie Sanders on their labor practices mm -hmm. in Amazon warehouses. Um, they have gotten in a tremendous amount of pushback, um, deservedly so, about how they sort of handled the search for their second headquarters, the way they tantalized all these cities across the country, asking for tax breaks, and then settled on New York City and Alexandria, Virginia, or just outside of D.C., um, you know, for the splitting the two, the two, the, the headquarter in, headquarters in two, in two areas that are already doing quite well, two cities that are already doing quite well. So this whole sort of hope that maybe a second headquarters would come to a city that could use some uplifting from an economic boom like an Amazon, that all went away. 
Meanwhile, Amazon is still collecting lots of lots of economic goodies and tax credits. I think the backlash against that, you know, is is another reflection of the tide starting to turn, at least in people's perception of the company. But at the same time, you know, on this five-day big shopping spree that has just come to an end from Thanksgiving to Cyber Monday, Amazon had record sales, you know, the, the highest ever in the company's history. So it hasn't clearly hasn't stopped people from shopping there. And so our, our current president, you know, also waded into this, and, and he said recently that for every Amazon package that Amazon delivers, that the United States Postal Service, the you know USPO, that it loses a dollar fifty. Is that true? I mean, it's it, the post office is. I mean, there's lots of folks that have have uh, either with the post office or formerly with the post office and other analysts said that's that's not true. You know, the actual contract um, is not public, so we don't. It, it's hard to know and get any visibility um, into the rates that were set. Um, but it is, a, it, and you know, again, President Trump is, is sort of inflamed this, and as he often does, and, and with really sort of inflammatory rhetoric um, and kind of simplified stuff. But it, it is a very, um, you know, the, the basic question remains, which is, um, you know, Amazon is, is the biggest, or remains, if not the biggest, one of the biggest customers of the U.S. Postal Service. Sunday delivery. I mean, it is the, the fortunes of the post office is so tied into this one company um, as of recent years. Um, and yet uh, Amazon is incredibly successful and the post office still struggles financially. So, um, you know, I think there's still an enormous amount of questions about why that is and what the deal was that was cut and whether there'll be you know, changes in, in future in future deals. So, you know, again, President Trump is, you know, again, quite, he's, he's stirring the pot, but it's a fair area and a fair bunch of questions to ask. We've been talking with Michael Corkery, who's a reporter at the New York Times. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks a lot. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. Coming up after the break, how big data is changing the way companies advertise online. With so many platforms to choose from, how can companies stay on the top of online marketing? We'll be talking to representatives from Go Data Feed, a company that is radically changing the way data is used in online retail and marketing. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hey, welcome back to Future City. I'm Wes Moore. Today on the show, we're talking about the retail industry, what's changing and what hasn't. 
How are businesses interacting with their consumers in person or online? And what does that mean for the economy? All these questions are being discussed today. And to help us understand the online economy and how businesses are utilizing data to connect with shoppers, we're being joined by Kieran Zebo, the CEO and co-founder of GoDataFeed, and Lynn Grossman, the director of PR. GoDataFeed is a product data handling site for getting products listed around the web. Kieran and Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. So, so Kieran, I'd like to start with you. G- give us the background on GoDataFeed, when it was founded, where the idea came from, and uh, and for those who aren't familiar with the site, how it all works. Sure, <clears throat> not a problem. So, you know, GoDataFeed was started back in 2007 um, by my co-founder, who he was a local, he was a Microsoft developer. And at one of the Microsoft events, he met an old friend of his, they got chatting, and um, turns out this guy was selling ink cartridges online. And back in those days, in 2007, there were multiple comparison shopping sites that one could list ink cartridges on. And his problem was getting that product data to those channels. So I co-founded built a widget and, um, you know, opened up a service. And basically, that's when, you know, GoDataFeed was born. So... You know, to explain a little bit about what we do and how it all works. So, you know, the core problem that we solve is helping, you know, the retailers list their products on the digital shelf, you know, with the right product details on the right platforms and, you know, platforms such as Google, Amazon, you know, Walmart, eBay, Facebook, Instagram, you know, anywhere where you go and find products online. Now, unlike traditional retail where a product is always not on the shelf, in, in e-commerce and on the digital shelf, um, the retailer really needs to ensure that the product data and the data points are correct and updated and accurate at all times. Um, so this creates quite a challenge for them. So just, you know, think about price and inventory levels are changing consistently. So merchants have to ensure that that's accurate across, you know, the, the, the growing plethora of channels that are out there. So, you know, what we do for our customers is, you know, we give them access to our platform that has an entire feature set that helps them managing, manage the entire process of essentially the data lifecycle or the product data lifecycle. So, you know, we help them bring in their product data, um, and from that point onwards, they really have the ability to modify the product data initially, you know, for compliance with the respective channels that they're looking to be on. And then they can sort of optimize that to get the most compelling offering across their choice of channels that, you know, they have their products listed on. So just to give you an example of one of, you know, the earlier use cases, you know, back in probably I think about 2008 is, you know, we had one of the largest fur hat sellers in the country um, getting online. And he had a problem is, you know, his sales were stagnant. It was season. Nothing was selling. And so we had a chat with him, and we took a look at his listings, and we noticed that all his titles were um, fur hats as opposed to some other title where, you know, the traffic or the shoppers were looking for, which essentially was winter hats. So, you know, the software within minutes changed over 100,000 individual SKUs to focus on winter hats as opposed to fur hats. And literally, within, within minutes, you know, sales started to spike. Um, so that, that's just a very basic example of, you know, how pertinent the data is for those channels and how pertinent it is for merchants to get that right and get their products in front of shoppers. So how exactly does it work, though, getting that product streamlined, uh, you know, to the consumer that the consumer then is seeing what the actual price is and then how it benefits the consumer? Right, exactly. So, um, you know, I think today merchants or retailers are a little bit overwhelmed and, um you know, from a customer's perspective, you know, there's just a growing plethora of channels. And I think it's actually be- the lines are becoming really blurred between those channels. Hmm. Um, you know, they expect to be able to find those products wherever they want and whatever device they have on any channel at any time. 
Um, so I think, you know, obviously with, with the penetration of mobile and the pace of technology, consumers, you know, they're savvy, they're checking prices, they're, they're looking at reviews and ratings and shipping and, um, you know, and they can see that across platforms, you know, whether on Facebook or social media or if they're on Google or searching for a product on Amazon, you know, they expect the products to be there and to be accurate at all times. So essentially, you know, what we do is we have a technical integration with over 200 sales channels um, that merchants can leverage to, you know, submit their products, these were their product data to which, whichever of those 200 they prefer. They also have the option to modify, you know, the product details to ensure it's clear, accurate, and competitive on those channels. And it's got a ton of built-in features to help the merchants monitor the process and alert them to problems and, and give them ways to optimize and, and sort of monitor performance better on those channels. Um, so essentially, you know, one integration with us, and then we integrate to 200 channels, and we essentially just unlock that potential for them. So, Lynn, you know, in your role as, as, as head of PR, I mean, you're, you're mm-hmm. in charge of making sure that people understand this, uh, to, to hear what people are saying about it. Um, you know, how mm-hmm. receptive have, have businesses been to GoDataFeed? Well, I mean, given the increasing amount of channels and the requirements and complexities within those channels, I mean, there's so many data points that retailers need to be on top of and are constantly being added and changed. Um, so uh, they've been receptive to our solution because, you know, we're, we're, hel- we're helping them solve this problem. And, and you know, because we, uh, a lot of our clients are SMBs, um, you know, they need those resources. They don't always have the time or the technical aptitude to, to tackle these problems. Um, so... And that is why they are receptive. I mean, we really are just solving a problem for them and helping them work through those issues. If you think about it, you know, maybe 10 years ago when we started this company, e-commerce was, was still in its infancy. Only about 2 to 3% of business was conducted online. Now, you know, now it's growing year over year. I mean, we just had a Black Friday of uh, $6 billion. <laughs> so it's, uh, as you can see, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's it's going to keep growing. So our solutions, our data solutions, help the retailers move past some of the technical hurdles that they have before them. But in general, it just reflects, uh, you know, how brick and mortar is being influenced by e-commerce because now consumers expect an omni-channel experience. You want to be able to receive your package within a day or two. Um, You want variety. You want depth. You want the user experience to be just like it is online. So from a PR perspective, it's definitely influenced the experience a great deal. So, so Kieran, you know, the, the same way that you're working to uh, disrupt the idea of online marketing, there are obviously folks who are coming in to disrupt the disruption of online marketing, right? So, so you're, you, you constantly find yourself being both the, the predator and the prey at the same time. How, how, how then do you think about the, the type of things that you guys are working on now um, and, and how your model continues to evolve to be able to adapt to that? Oh, that's a great question. So, so you know, that's something that, that every day there's something new in the industry. Um, you know, with the penetration of mobile and the technological advances, there's just, you know, just about every day there's new platforms coming out. And, you know, we, we see trends. You could, you could think about trends in a way that is sort of distance from the customer. Um, so the last mile, you've got local stores which are getting online. At the same time, on the other extreme, you've got cross, um, cross-border. So, you know, you've got companies like Wish that will get products, you know, into the States from China in between, you know, five and ten days. 
Um, so it's really, um, you know, the options are, are, are sort of limitless out there. So retailers really have to decide on what their strategy is. They have to definitely get involved um, in e-commerce. So if you think about omni-channel, or if you think about but in 2007 when we started, there was the retailers brick and mortar, and then you had the sort of pure plays of online commerce. Today, everything is just retail. Every retailer, think Target, think Nordstrom Rack, think Walmart, um, they have to get involved in e-commerce. Um, and it's taken them a while to get there, but with the two main disrupting forces being, you know, obviously technology, and based on that, the consumer behavior has changed dramatically. Um, so that's really shaking up the whole marketing and advertising um, industry. And, you know, retailers that think about that now and put a five-year, ten-year plan together, they're the ones who are actually succeeding today. And the ones that don't take that seriously will go by the way of, you know, Circuit City, Toys R Us, and so forth. On the flip side of that, you know, there's also, if you look at e-commerce in general, e-commerce only represents about 11% of total retail sales, um, but it is growing pretty fast at about 15% annually. Um, but, the, you know, the bulk of retail is still in-store, and we expect, you know, in-store and brick-and-mortar is certainly going to change and, you know, bring in technology to those stores. On the flip side of that, there's also a lot of opportunity for new brands to enter the market. In a sense, you know, advertising has been democratized. So a small startup could now compete with a multi-billion dollar established, perhaps an incumbent brand. Um, so we think, for example, Dollar Shave Club, um, that essentially was a brand born online using a different business model than the traditional incumbents. So, you know, they were setting a monthly subscription for razors, um, and they recently got acquired for, I think, a billion dollars in cash by Unilever. Now, this company's real push came when the founder launched a video on YouTube that went viral. Um, generated something like 12,000 orders in two days. Um, I mean, they even got multiple sort of industry awards for that ad. So in general, the retail economy is changing through innovation, and there's certainly going to be a shakeup for many retailers. But, you know, the benefit at the end of the day is that the consumers have now, you know, limited choice and access. So when you say, and, and, and Lynn, I'll throw this to you, you know, one thing that we know is that competition breeds innovation and urgency. So how have you seen the brick-and-mortar model when it comes to commerce and marketing change because they now feel these new threats coming? From, from the business model perspective, I mean, the e-commerce has definitely become um, an absolute necessity for brick-and-mortar because how are we communicating with customers? You're getting emails, you're getting texts, you're getting promotions. Um, social has become a huge factor um, for increasingly savvier and more demanding consumers. I mean, you know, you want to sh- be able to shop from anywhere. Uh, I mean, half of sales are pretty much mobile at this point. Um, and a customer wants that omni-channel experience. They want, they want to be able to get, you know, I mean, we use Amazon. What's interesting about Amazon is that they took the most mundane piece of the online shopping experience, which is, the shipping, and we're able to use that to dominate the retail market. You know, they, they turned that into the two-day, the instant gratification factor um, that really now the entire industry has to catch up. Mm-hmm. So that's how, I mean, if you even if you don't find something in store, they're going to ship it to you, you know. So that has definitely, the e-commerce has made brick and mortar, um, I mean, the ones who refuse to evolve are dead. Pretty much. I mean, if you look at all the closures, all the um, the massive store closures all over the country in the malls, it's 
it's those stores that refuse to evolve um, with the digital presence and the expectations that are, you know, the suffering, the, the consequences, sadly. But that is the way it is. I mean, that's the reality. That's the, you know, it's the consumer focus that is um, driving sales, driving uh, commerce. We've been speaking with Kieran Zabo, who is the CEO and co-founder of GoDataFeed, and Lynn Grossman, the director of PR. Thank you both so much for taking the time to talk with today, and thank you for your work in this space. Thank you, Wes. Coming up after the break, we are zooming in in our city of Baltimore. What does our retail economy actually look like? How are our neighborhoods changing and growing? What do we need to do to bolster our economy and ensure a bright future for our entire city? We're speaking with Vice President of Economic Development at the Downtown Partnership of Baltimore, Davon Barber, to help us learn more. Stay tuned. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hey, welcome back to Future City. I'm Wes Moore. I hope this holiday season is finding you relaxing with family and friends. But if you're like a lot of us, you might be rushing around getting that last bit of shopping done. We've been talking all about retail on today's show. Online versus brick-and-mortar shops, the trends, and the economic implications. But now we'll be zeroing in on our city of Baltimore to learn about how our city's retail economy is changing and evolving. To help us learn more, I'd like to welcome our final guest, Davon Barber, who's a Senior Vice President of Economic Development at the Downtown Partnership of Baltimore. Davon, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And it's good having you back in Baltimore. So a, a Baltimore guy who uh, found his way down in Florida and then decided to come back. T- tell us a little bit about your evolution. I did. I did. I, you know, I left the, the fun and sun and I came back to my home. My entire family's here in Baltimore. Born and raised here. My entire family's here. Um, but I, I had the calling to come back. You know, when I left Baltimore back in 2004, just wanted to experience the world a little bit, get some perspective, learn from other communities. Um, but back in 2015, around April, we know that was a difficult time for our city. Uh, I received a call from some friends and colleagues saying, Davon, you know, it's time for you to come back home. And initially I thought, you know, I'm enjoying the sun, the warm weather, the the international culture. Talk to me later. Uh, but then the riots took place in 2015. And I remember, you know, sitting in front of my TV watching CNN. And um, at that time, I, I was watching you know, sort of in horror um, as a, a CVS store was burning in flames. And that resonated with me. I grew up in the Mondam and Penn North neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I thought, you know, my city needs me. Um, and I packed up my bags and returned back to Baltimore in August of 2015. And so you then came back to join the Downtown Partnership. That's correct. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about what the Downtown Partnership is for those who aren't familiar? Sure. Um, the Downtown Partnership is an incredible organization. It's been in existence for about 30 years now. It's the largest and oldest business improvement district in Baltimore City. Um, our mission really is to create a vibrant city core. So we focus on everything from economic development, business attraction, 
retention, uh, creating vibrant public spaces, producing events for citizens for all of Baltimore. And so it's really a phenomenal organization representing property owners and businesses. You know, when you think of a downtown, downtown represents everyone. And so we really work hard to ensure that is that downtown is open to everyone. So what type of things are you all working on that you're most proud of? When someone says, what are some of the main initiatives for the downtown partnership? What are some of the first ideas and some of the first things that come out of your mouth? Sure. You know, as, as I mentioned before, you know, we want to make sure that downtown is inclusive. So a number of our activities on the transportation front, uh, we work to create the Charm City Circulator. Um, and so that's a service, again, that's free for citizens, for residents, for workers uh, traversing downtown. I think that's a, uh, a system that we're really proud of. From our events, making sure that we produce events that, again, that are accessible to everyone, for children, for families. Um, one of our most recent events that took place uh, recently was the Monument Lighting. And so every single year we have thousands of families flocking uh, to the core of downtown to, to witness the Monument Lighting. So that's something that makes us feel really, really good. Uh, in terms of our business services as well, making sure that we're creating opportunity. Uh, since 2003, for example, we administer a facade improvement grant program. And so we've expended about $2.6 million improving 200, over 200 properties in downtown. That's really important, helping some of our small businesses uh, when we look at improving the climate around. So, you know, we really try and make sure that we're accessible, that we're inclusive and creating opportunity for everyone. So when we're talking about how retail is doing around the country, we spent some time even this episode talking about that. How is retail doing here in Baltimore? And particularly the fact that downtown really is a bit of a, a, it's the heartbeat Mm -hmm. of when we think about retail in the city. How's, How's retail doing in Baltimore? When you look at the retail development in the city that's taken place recently, it's really exciting. Um, in recently, recent terms, Canton Crossing, which has provided tremendous resource for the neighborhood. You've, you've got Target. You've got the new Nordstrom Rack coming in. I think you know everyone's really excited about that. In Greektown, you've got the new Yard 56 project coming online. Old Town Mall is being redeveloped. So there are certainly uh, signs of progress in the city, and we, and we continue to see that. Many of our neighborhoods where there was not re- recent investment, that investment's starting to take place. And so um, overall, I'm really excited about the trajectory of retail in, in the city. Um, I think our ne- our neighborhoods are, are, are flourishing. Certainly, we, we, we have some challenges, but overall, things are looking up upri- looking upright for uh for retail. So when we're talking about retail, we know that it's not just about how are we attracting certain businesses. It's like, you know, how are we thinking about parking? How are we thinking about safety? How are we thinking about all the other elements that make up a vibrant retail community, a very walkable community? Uh, What are some of the other things that are top of mind when you're thinking about the things that we need to do in order to strengthen our retail environment? Sure. I'm so glad you asked that question. It's, It's a great one. You know, I think we have to look at the city is our shopping mall. So when I work with communities, I always say, listen, let's put yourself in the perspective of a shopping mall owner. If your your traditional shopping mall owner owns the real estate, they have the ability to control the marketing. They have the free parketing. They have the ability to offer financial assistance to help businesses build out. And so if we're to be successful as a community, we also have to think of ourselves as a shopping mall. So the built environment is absolutely critical. I think certainly we have to pay, continue to pay focus uh, to safety, uh, focusing on the streetscape experience as well, enhancing our commercial corridors, uh, making sure that, again, we're providing a vibrant experience. We have to really understand that retail is competitive. And so when you're looking to move into an environment to go shopping, you're going to go to a place where you've got convenience, where you can get, find a clustering of services that meet your needs, uh, and also where you just feel safe and it's inviting. And so 
we really have to make sure that we're continuing to do that. I think uh, with sustained focus, we're going to continue to see progress. And we are seeing evidence of that in neighborhoods throughout the city. So it's, it's really important um, to, in order to attract retail. Again, this is a competitive environment. Retailers, when they're looking to choose sites, to choose sites they're really looking at those select markets that are uh, destined to really provide the greatest return on investment. So as long as we understand that, I think we can be successful. So when we're talking about convenience, uh, how do we can compete with the convenience of just clicking on a phone or clicking on a computer? How do you compete with that convenience that we're now watching a significant disruption when it comes to the way people get their goods? Mm. Well, here's the good thing. Retail is not dead. Brick and mortar is not dead. And I think there is an irrational fear out there that because of the convenience of online shopping, that brick and mortar stores are, will no longer exist. That's not the case at all. In fact, the online presence really allows a consumer to really test a product and then come into a store uh, to test it out. And it's important for retailers, I think, to understand that, hey, yes, Amazon and other retailers are out there are really increasing their online presence, but you've got to also provide great service in order to get those cu those customers through the door. So it's not an either-or proposition. In fact, you know, I think of myself a lot of times and, and other consumers as well, we like to shop online or at least research online before actually visiting the physical store. Um, recently, the International Council of Shopping Centers, which represents the uh, retail real estate industry, they commissioned a study, and they found that 9 out of 10 consumers research their products online before actually visiting a brick-and-mortar location. Um, and so that's really, really important. I, I can't stress enough the importance of the experience. You know, retail today is quickly evolving. You've got to capture the imagination very quickly. You know, our time is really precious. And so just think about it. You're, if you're standing uh, waiting for a bus or if you're in, on the train and you're thinking, you know, I need to order some flowers, what's the first thing you do? You pull your phone out of your pocket and you start to research what's around you. And so that convenience is really, really important. And so as retailers, you've got to make sure that you're giving people a competitive reason to come to your store. And so when we talk about this issue of convenience, there's, there's, uh, there's you know, almost two icebergs coming, right? One is the convenience of the click. One is the convenience of I can just go to one place and get everything I need. So if I need to do my grocery shopping, I need to pick up some clothes for the kids. I also need to go pick up some, you know, a, a weed whacker for the lawn. I can go to three different stores or I can go to one that probably has them all within a, you know, all within a, a 10,000 square foot, you know, vantage point of each other. Um, how then do we think about that when it comes to urban development, urban planning, and making sure that we're making it advantageous uh, and also creating real avenues of opportunity for the small business that just focuses on one thing instead of the big boxes that say we can cover down on everything. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think the the opportunity that lies for Baltimore, particularly, in fact, all cities, you know, the majority of the world's population is really returning to the core. And so Baltimore is experiencing growth just like other cities across the country. You know, people are growing tired of the long commute. Millennials are really driving traffic. That's a key demographic for retailers and for many communities. Um, you're empty nesters. The kids are, you know, they've, they've moved on to college and, and they're ready to return. To, the parents are, re are ready to return to the core to take advantage of those amenities. And so, and from a convenience 
convenience standpoint, yes, those retailers, I think, can survive in urban markets. They look at the population growth that's taking place. And so um, that is absolutely a competitive advantage for uh, for communities. Mixed-use development is absolutely critical. The city has taken a number of steps recently, I think, to facilitate that, particularly through the uh, new rezoning, Transform Baltimore, which does encourage a variety of uses. Um, and so I think that's something that benefits the, the city in the long run. I'd also say that well, you know, one of the key uh, considerations is experience, 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 and high-quality customer service. Um, there's, there's no doubt that online retailing is growing. It's here to stay. But as retailers, you've got to give someone a compelling reason to come through the, to come through the door. Um, you know, make sure that you know your product. That's something really, really critical. I think of, you know, one of my favorite retailers that's here in the city. When I go to that shop, I'm greeted with a warm smile every single time. The owners of the shop know every single product. They know my preferences. So when I walk through the door, they're customizing the products for me. They offer classes as well. And so think about that. They're not just selling a product, they're selling an experience so that you're engaged, you're learning about those products, and you want to come back each time and spend your money. That's what it's all about. I, I was talking with somebody the other day, uh, and, and I asked them where their favorite, what's their favorite restaurant, and they said the one that treats me the best. Yeah, yeah. You know, that it's a very personal experience, and oftentimes it's not even just exclusively about the product that you're getting. It's also about how the service and the entire wraparound of the experience, how it makes you feel. Absolutely. I mean, service is definitely a premium. And unfortunately, I think a lot of retailers misunderstand the importance of, of that, that experience. I remember recently going in, into a store, a national store, um, and I said, uh, you know, so I saw a sales associate and I said, excuse me, I'm looking for a shoe rack. And the associate just kind of looked at me and said, no, sir, we don't sell shoe racks. And I said, you sell shoe racks. I assure you, you that you sell hanging shoe racks. I've purchased one from before. No, sir, we don't sell those. You'll have to go to another, he named another retailer where I have to buy that product. And I thought to myself, that just represented a loss of a sale for this particular mm. business because the associate didn't know the product. I found the product. I then walked back over to the sales associate and said, look, you do sell shoe racks, <laughs> you know. Um, and it's unfortunate, again, it's so important to, to understand that product. Uh, I, I cannot stress it enough. And you're absolutely right. You know, you go where you're treated the best, where you're treated like gold. That's where you want to spend your money. So where's the jurisdictional lines for the Baltimore, for the downtown partnership? Where does it begin? Where does it end? Sure. So our management authority, we manage what's called the downtown management authority. Uh, it's about 106 uh, city blocks. And so roughly speaking, the southern boundary is Pratt Street to the south, okay. uh, falls way to the east. Uh, Center Street to the north, and then we create sort of a chimney stack along the uh, Antique Row Corridor along Howard Street, and then Green Street to the west. That is our jurisdiction. So, so I mean, as you know, I mean, Baltimore is, is a is a it's a city of neighborhoods. In fact, one of the one of the first thing you did when you mentioned that you were from Baltimore, you mentioned the neighborhood yes. that you were from because that's 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 Baltimore, right? Um, what are some of the things that you're seeing in what neighborhoods that's most exciting you when it comes to the way they are rethinking retail sure. and the way they're rethinking the experience? You know, I think, you know, and, and particularly in some of the neighborhoods where there has not been much investment, you're starting to see outside prop, uh, capital pour into those neighborhoods. When you look at the reinvestment around our public markets, you know, what's happening in Holland, uh, Holland Square, I think there's some excitement there. Port Covington on the southern peninsula of the city, I think that represents, represents tremendous uh, new retail opportunity for the city. Um, when you look at what's happening in Hamden, 
um, just the clustering of restaurants there, local retailers. In fact, you know, I think the 36th Street Corridor is probably one of the best main streets. That's a perfect example where you've got local operators creating an authentic experience. And as a result, you know, they're, they're experiencing strong sales and strong visitation. I love the fact that you highlighted non-downtown areas. Uh, because, you know, even though your jurisdictional lines fall into the downtown partnership, I think also one of the beautiful things about Baltimore is that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's small enough that people can actually see what's going on in other areas uh, and, and, and big enough that people actually care, yeah. right? And I mean, so it's, it, it creates an interesting prospect, the fact that you know your jurisdictional focus is in a certain area, but some of the things that are most exciting you are in places that are completely outside of that jurisdictional area. Well, it's it's really important. You know, great cities are made up of its neighborhoods. And so we really see our success also is building opportunity for small businesses, for citizens in other neighborhoods as well. And so that connectivity is really important. You know, we're all in this together. We want everyone around the world celebrating Baltimore. Um, we have shared experiences. And, and yes, you know, our success also depends on the health and vitality of other neighborhoods as well. So when we talk about in the future, we know that there are going to be certain industries and or businesses within those industries that just won't make it. Uh, and it's just the nature of the evolution uh, of, of these industries and, and evolution of cities. Uh, but these are also places that sit on significant and really prominent real estate. How are we thinking about the future of that real estate? Uh, and usages, things that we can be creative uh, when it comes to adapting to a future society and the way people move, the way people live, uh, and, and how we can get ahead of that. Um, you know, it's, I would say the Great Recession really was a learning opportunity for many cities. And one of the first tactics that communities started to do was address their zoning to allow uses, non-traditional uses to activate space. So let's take our big box retailer, for example. That's a tradition. That's a large amount of uh, real estate, and so all of a sudden, communities and developers were looking at their assets, saying, "You know, this is a large amount of space. How do we backfill this?" So one of the uses that you started to see backfilling some of that large space was healthcare, um, healthcare uses, or even educational uses. Now, when that shopping center uh, had a, a retailer at that time, the underlying zoning may have been commercial. And so the city, cities then had to respond and address the zoning. Baltimore is taking those steps as well, recently with the adoption of Transport Baltimore. And so I think that's a new opportunity for us as well. Um, entertainment, food and entertainment are really galvanizing the retail industry all across the country. When you look at the success of just food halls in general in Baltimore, as an example, you know, our food halls are, are now taking over space, um, readaptive, uh, re, uh, revitalized spaces. When you look at our house or Mount Vernon Marketplace, you're going to continue to see spaces like that also transformed. And so, you know, having that, the ability to have zoning that provides mixed uses, thinking out of the box, I think it will allow us to address a lot of that. When you think about the different things that you saw and learned from your time in Florida or the things that you're seeing now, take us, take us on a trip outside of Baltimore and tell us what we as Baltimoreans should see and know about the future of downtown and the future of retail. I am so glad that you asked this question. Um, you know, I would say one of the things that I really learned outside of Baltimore is the importance of the details. Mm. The details matter. Great cities do not happen by happenstance. You know, there's actual careful planning, there's tactical intervention, and there's a vision. And I think we need to do a better job of aligning those here in, in, in Baltimore. So when I use the example again of us, of us thinking of ourselves as a shopping mall, Again, your traditional shopping mall owner, they're thinking about the every single detail of that shopping experience. 
what the driveway looks like on the approach, the landscaping that's there, the signage um, that each retailer has in place. And so we need to look at our streets in the same manner. You know, what does the lighting look, look like on each of our corridors? What landscaping is in place? Are our buildings conveying that, hey, this is a safe environment? Are our buildings conveying that this is an attractive place that people care? What paint colors are we using? What style um, for signage? Those details absolutely matter. I think we could do a better job as a city articulating that because each of us has a role to creating that experience. Who are some places that you think are doing it really well? Um, I would say outside of the city, uh, Orlando, I think, does, does a great job of that. Um, the city's motto, in fact, is the city beautiful. Um, <laughs> and again, they understand that. Another community, which I think Coral Gables, which is also in, in Florida. Uh, Philadelphia, I think, does really great work in terms of attracting retail, particularly on the public sector side. These are all communities that I look to. I always look to best practices. And, and again, I say to you, you know, when I left Baltimore, it was important for me to learn from the, these other places to bring those experiences back. We've been speaking with Davon Barber, who's a senior vice president of economic development at Downtown Partnership of Baltimore. Davon, thank you for coming back home and thank you for your commitment to the city. Thank you so much, Wes. Before we take off for the day, I just wanted to leave you with a few final thoughts. So if you're at all like me, you're listening to this and the list of people you still need to get gifts for is racking up and you're thinking about how exactly to get those gifts. But just like everything we talk about here on Future City, the issue is always bigger than the initial subject. The future of retail is not just about how we shop. It also helps to determine how we move, where we live, and where we work. These evolutions in retail have very human implications. And while the online marketplace has brought our consumerism closer, it also has a potential to physically separate us. I get the attraction to online shopping. I do it all the time. It's quick, it's convenient, it's easy. You know what you're going to get. And if you have a good or bad experience, you can leave a report for others to follow. I also know its growth is inevitable. We as a society cannot focus always on slowing its evolution, but we should instead focus on why the integrated human interaction of retail makes us all better. Our future city is one where our humanity is shared in the physical and not simply in the virtual world. Future City is an original production of WYPR, and it airs at 1 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. on the third Wednesday of every month. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. You can listen to previous episodes online at wypr.org slash podcast central. For 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Thanks for listening. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fidler and the Baltimore Community Foundation.